We're going to be reading from Matthew 5, 1 through 10. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and began to teach them. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Amen. You may be seated. That's how uh, that text ought to be read. Thank you, Christiana. We got to feel how precious that text is to you. And... um, We're going to begin our, our, our summer series, and I believe we're going to a very precious place in the Bible, maybe a place that doesn't get the attention that it should. It's a place that ought to be front and center uh, for every Christ follower. Um, this is the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is Matthew, Matthew 5 or 7. Um, we're going to, for the first half of the summer, study the Beatitudes, which is what was just read, uh, one Beatitude at a time. And then the second half of the summer, tucked away in the center of the, of, uh, the Sermon on the Mount is the Lord's Prayer, and we're going to look at that one clause or sentence at a time as well. So why this part of the Bible? Well, one of the critiques leveraged against Christians today is the superficial and hypocritical thing that we've become. And I, I, I think in many ways this is a fair critique. I mean, for all the religious activity that we devote ourselves, the, the billions of dollars that we, we spend on, on religious things like buildings and programming, the church has largely become irrelevant, at least in our part of the world today. And I think a lot of this is just because we've become a lot like the world around us. Like the world, we're obsessed with image, we're obsessed with celebrity, with stage audience, consumerism, with being cool. Um, someone recently gave me this article uh, called Preachers and Sneakers. Has anybody seen this thing? I mean, you, you have preachers today who are wearing $2,000 pairs of sneakers. Mine are $50. <laughs> um, and, and I don't want to get into that, but what drives that? Well, for me, the cause of all this is quite simple. First of all, it's our attitude towards the Bible. It's our failure to take this book seriously. It's our failure to read it, to mine it, to digest it. It's our failure to look at this as the sole authority of our lives. Let me ask you, what place does 
this book right now hold in your life? Do you read it? Do you sit under it? Do you digest it? Is it the authority in your life? And I'll give you one simple reason why the Bible should be. It's because it was the authority in Jesus' life. Everything Jesus said, everything Jesus did, it was based on the book. And now what we have in the Sermon on the Mount, this is why this is precious, is this is one of those places where, where the living word, Jesus, explains the written word, the text. He explains uh, what the Bible says about God, what it says about us, about who we are, what we are to be in our world. That's why this is precious. And I believe with all my heart that if we could become this sermon, our world would know that there is a living Jesus who is alive, and I mean alive in the resurrection sense, that, that God today is resurrecting his world through a resurrected people. In fact, what our world is looking for is true Christians. Christians who look a lot like the Jesus they talk about. And that's what the Sermon on the Mount is. It is first a sermon that's about Jesus. And I don't think it's too dramatic of a thing to say that Jesus came to this world to preach this sermon, to live and die this sermon. And then he sent his Holy Spirit to indwell us so that you and I might live this sermon. Now look at the first verse. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountain and he sat down. Maybe I should just sit right here the whole time. You think I'm capable of this or not? <laughs> nope. <laughs> And it says, and his disciples came to him, and he began to teach who? The crowd? His disciples. This is Discipleship 101. Now, this, uh, this sermon begins with, with, with what we call the Beatitudes, and the Beatitudes, I think, are quite well known. And, and these are the, th the, the things that we're going to unpack, these 10 verses. We're going to unpack these uh, verses the next several weeks. Now, personally, the Beatitudes, they, they, they almost crush me to the ground. I mean, nothing like the Beatitudes shows me my utter helplessness, my absolute need for Christ. Nothing like the Beatitudes ex exposes my, my desperate need for, for Jesus to come in my life and to remake me, to reshape my heart, to reshape my life. Nothing shows me my need for, for the Holy Spirit to, to, to fill me from the, from the top of my head to the soles of my feet, like these 10 verses. Now, the word beatitude actually obviously isn't in the text. It's a Latin word. Does anybody know what it means? Beatitude means the state of great joy. It's to be incredibly fortunate 
And that's because each beatitude begins with the word blessed. And that's what blessed here means. It, it means to be full of joy. It means to be the most fortunate. It means to not just be happy, but to be ecstatically happy. That's what the Beatitudes describe. They, they, they describe the truly fortunate ones. Eugene Peterson, when he was translating this uh, for, for his Bible, The Message, he, he literally wanted to use the word lucky. <laughs> But he knew that that would rough, ruffle uh, Christians wrong because there is no luck. And that's not the side of lucky that he was trying to get at. But he was trying to get at like when we use the phrase like you're so lucky. That's, what, that's what's conveyed here. These are the so lucky ones. Have you ever stopped to think about how unhappy our world is? In fact, that's a, that, that's a question that, that a lot of pundits are, are, are asking. They're, they're asking this question, why are we so unhappy, especially when you consider how much we have? I mean, kings, queens, emperors of the past didn't live nearly as good as all of us live today. And, and why is it then that so many people are so miserable, especially when we have made happiness life's highest aim? And then think about how, how many people live to just show a, a glimmer of happiness in their life, whether through Facebook or, or Instagram, to say, hey world, you see how happy I am right now. And actually we see, no, how miserable you are because if you were so happy, you wouldn't have to post that all the time. <laughs> Libby said, don't say that today. Listen to what Peggy Noonan, who, who writes for the Wall Street Journal, um, what, what she wrote uh, recently. She said, I think we have lost the old knowledge that happiness is overrated, that in a way life is overrated. We have lost somehow a sense of mystery about us, our purpose, our meaning, our role. Our ancestors believed in two worlds and understood this world to be the solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short one. And we are the first generations of man that actually expected to find happiness here on earth. And our search for it has caused such unhappiness. Something to think about. And then you think how, how so many people just thoughtlessly believe the lies of our world that, that, that happiness can be found in money or that happiness can be found if I can get a little bit of fame or or, or popularity, or, or if I could just attain a little bit of power or a certain position, that that will make me happier. If I could just dress this a certain way, or look a certain way, or have the right kind of friends, that, that that will make me happy. And it's almost tragic today to see how many people are seeking happiness but coming up short. And here stands the Sermon on the Mount, with Jesus over and over again saying, happy are the happy are the. In other words, Jesus believes happiness is a real thing. And of course it is. God made us for joy. He made us to experience happiness. And it's all promised here right in our text. Maybe we should stop listening to the world and start listening to Jesus. 
Now, it's important to see when you're reading the Beatitudes that these Beatitudes are not describing different groups of people. The Beatitudes collectively describe one person. Collectively, they they provide this this profile of someone who truly belongs to God. They, They describe the heart and the character of a genuine Christ follower. Because when you look at the first beatitude, it, it ends with, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then you go to the last beatitude, and that ends with the same thing, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And this is called an inclusio. An inclusio is a first century literary, literary technique of bracketing an idea. So everything within the brackets further describes who belong, who participate in the kingdom of heaven. I mean, you might call this Jesus' version of the fruits of the Spirit. Now, one of the things that we do with the fruits of the Spirit, and we could easily do it with the Sermon on the Mount, is is we could just say, well, here Jesus is describing a saint. As if there's this, like, special class of Christian, (laughs) and we call them saints. Well, the Bible says that every Christian is a saint, because saint simply means holy. Holy simply means set apart. We're all set apart by God. I mean, that's been our theme verse all year, but you are a chosen people. You are a holy nation. We're a nation of saints. Every Christian is to manifest all the characteristics of the Beatitudes. Because this is how we are set apart. This is how we are different. This is how we are distinct from our world. It's all right in these verses. We are poor in spirit. We are a people who mourn. We're meek. We hunger and thirst for righteousness. We're merciful. We're pure in heart. We're peacemakers, and we're the persecuted. Now, if I'm honest, this list of characteristics goes against everything I am predisposed to be. It goes against all my natural instincts. It goes against all my fleshly desires. It goes against all my selfish ambitions. And I don't think you could come up with a list of characteristics that that are more contrary to our world and contrary to the ways of the world, what our world pursues, what it seeks, what it values. And not just contrary, but offensive. (laughs) That's why the last beatitude, blessed are the persecuted. I mean, mean, this kind of person that, that inhabits these characteristics, they're a threat to the world. You know who these Beatitudes actually describe most? Jesus. If you want to know what Jesus' heart was like, if you want to know what his character was like, if you want to know what his life was like, the kind of life he lived, if you want to know uh, the path he walked and how he walked it, it's the Beatitudes. 1 John 2 says that if anyone claims to be in Christ, he or she must walk as Jesus walked. (laughs) And then the net result then of of becoming like Jesus is persecution. We shouldn't be surprised by it. 
But that's not all. We now have something to offer the world when we become like Jesus. Because everything that Jesus is gonna talk about after the Beatitudes, about being a people who are salt in the world, light and shining in darkness, a city that's set on a hill, it, it, it's, that's the net result of what happens when, when we as a people become the Beatitudes. And yet the church has spent so much time and energy trying to be like the world, to be relevant, to be cool in the world's eyes. Our call has never been to be like the world or to be liked by the world. Our call has been to be like Jesus. Jesus said, you are of the, in the world, but not of the world. I'll tell you what, the more we become like Jesus, the more unlike our world we will become. And Jesus says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Do you even know what that means? Well, we're, we're not different just to be different. We're different because we belong to an entirely different kingdom than, than the kingdoms of this world. It, it, it's a kingdom with a whole different set of values. It, it, it's a kingdom with a different aim, with a different purpose. Again, as Jesus said, we're, we're in the world, but not of the world. We belong to God, we belong to his realm, to his kingdom. And so many Christians today have just this, this puny idea of the, of the kingdom of heaven, uh, the, the kingdom of heaven is, is, is pretty exciting. I mean, that's, that's like the understatement of the morning. Um, it, it, it's, it's, it's what the whole Bible is about. Uh, the kingdom of heaven is not just this future place that we go to that w when, we, when we think about heaven. In fact, the kingdom of heaven is, is, what, the, is what the Bible first describes when God creates the world because what the first verses of our Bible want us to know is that two realities from the beginning exist. Of course, the first reality is God, and the second reality that the Bible wants us to know that's already there when God creates is what's called in Hebrew the tohu vebohu. It's this churning mass of chaos. And so what creation is, it's, it's literally an act of war. It's God moving into that chaos and unleashing his reign, his rule, and transforming that chaos into order and into beauty and in harmony. It's what the Bible refers to as shalom. It's the world in this beautiful way, everything the way God intended it to be. That's the kingdom of heaven. And, and, and this then is the tragedy of, of sin, not just the first sin, but all sin, because the root of sin is pride. And, and, and pride is looking at God and it's saying, God, get out of my life. I don't need you, I can do just fine without you. I wanna be my own God, I wanna be the ruler of my life and the master of my, my destiny. God, get out. And that's what sin does, that's what sin did. It pushed God out, it sent the world back into chaos. 
This is what Paul talks about in Romans 1 when he says, for although they knew God, they neither glorified nor worshiped God. That's human pride. Because we start worshiping ourselves and we start worshiping created things. And then Paul says, and their thinking became hollow and empty. Their hearts became darkened. That's describing the tohu ve bohu. That's what happens to us as a result of sin. It's chaos. The gospel is this. That's why it's called the gospel of the kingdom is that God didn't give up on this world, that, that he comes again as, as king, as, as Messiah, to again declare war on the chaos, unleashing his reign and his rule on a world that he loves. And what comes forth? Nothing less than new creation. That's why when you go to the end of the Bible, something we should be reading all the time because this is our hope. Revelation, the whole theme of it is the kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of God and of his Christ. Then you go to the last two chapters, Revelation 21 and 22, and it describes a whole new earth where God's rule through his Christ is, is total and all the order and the beauty and the harmony that the world once had at the beginning, uh, it's, it's gonna cover every square inch of God's creation. Everything's gonna be made new. The earth, the mountains, the trees, we will be made new. Our bodies will be made new. And as it says, there'll be no more mourning or crying or pain or death for the old age has passed and the new age has come. And who can't wait for that? And this future hope that we have isn't just pie in the sky. It's a hope that's rooted in something concrete, something that actually happened 2,000 years ago. This man, Jesus, showed up on the scene. You know what he started declaring? Look at Matthew 4, right before the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. It's here. Something on par with creation is now breaking forth into the world. The reign and rule of God is being unleashed. And this isn't just a message. It's a reality. Look at the next verse. News about him spread all over Syria and people brought to him all who were ill of various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon possessed, those having seizures and the paralyzed, and he healed them. That's what the kingdom of heaven is. It's God repairing and restoring, God renewing, God re resurrecting. It's the lame walking, it's the blind seeing, it's the deaf hearing, it's the dead being raised. So the kingdom of heaven, don't think of it as something just future. It's something that's going on right now. And if you want the most basic definition of what, what it is, it's the place where Christ reigns. And the place where Christ reigns is where people submit to his kingship. Paul says one day every knee will bow to this king, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. A Christian is simply someone right now who is bowing the knee to their king, who submits every fiber of their being to this king, who looks to none but Jesus and says, that is my Lord, that is my king. 
Have you done that? Do you live that way? Has the kingdom of heaven broken out into your life? Are you happy? Are you excited? Are you full of joy? Does Christ rule your heart? Is he king of your life? Is he king of your time? Is he king of your possessions? Is he king of your body? Is he the Lord of your ambitions? Do you know the blessings of the kingdom? Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So now we have to ask ourselves, are we poor? And what does Jesus mean by, by, by poor? Now the word in the original language in Greek is patokoi. Patokoi is a certain kind of being poor. It's, it's the lowliest of the poor. Patokoi are the homeless poor. In fact, the most literal meaning of patokoi is the word beggar. If we don't feel the shock of this, we're not hearing what Jesus is saying. <laughs> Blessed are the poor, the patoki, the homeless, the beggars. Listen, this is not just poor in terms of circumstance. You need to hear me on this. Jesus says this is the poor in spirit. In fact, in some ways, this has little to do. I can't say nothing to do because the poor in circumstance have a lot better uh, uh, hope of understanding or getting to that place of being poor in spirit. But... Poor in spirit has everything to do with the attitude that we have towards ourselves, irrespective of whether we are rich or poor. To be poor in spirit means the absence of all pride. It's the absence of, of self-centeredness. It's the absence of self-confidence, self-sufficiency, self-righteousness, self-importance. And it literally means that we see ourselves as poor, irrespective of, of the fact that we're materially rich or poor, that we're nothing, that we're, we're, we're spiritual beggars. Do you see yourself this way? This flies in the face of, of, of everything that the world screams at us. The world tells us you need to believe in yourself, you need, you need a... a Tap into the, all those powers that, that are within yourself and, and, and unleash those powers. You need to express yourself. And that's why when we listen to the world, when we seek the world, when, when we live as if the world is all there is and we look to the world for our happiness, our worth, our joy and satisfaction, listen, this will never produce someone who's poor in spirit. Never. The only way we can become poor in spirit is when we come face to face with the real God. 
It's only when we, when we truly stand in his presence that we truly see that we're nothing, that we offer nothing, that we're nothing but as Abraham and Job described themselves in the presence of God, nothing but dust and ashes, that we're patokoi, that we're beggars, that we're utterly dependent on God for everything. I mean, this is the experience of, of, of almost everyone in, in the Bible when, when, when they come into the presence of God. Isaiah, as he stood before the face of God, not only said, God, I am nothing. It, it, was, it was worse than that. I'm unclean. Paul, who, who encountered the, 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 the brightness and the majesty of, of Christ, ends up concluding that, that all my righteous acts, says Paul, and he says, they're perfect. I can't believe he says that. But at the end of the day, in light of him, they're nothing but dung. They're poop. This is what it means to be poor in spirit. It's when we no longer rely on on ourselves for anything and rely on Christ for absolutely everything. It'd be almost criminal if I didn't bring Martin Lloyd-Jones into this. He is probably the foremost scholar on the Sermon on the Mount pastor of Westminster in London in the day. And listen to what he says about poor in spirit. He says, poor in spirit means that we shall not rely on our natural birth. We shall not rely upon the fact that we belong to certain families. We shall not rely upon the fact that we belong to certain nations or nationalities. We shall not rely upon our position in life or any powers that may have been given to us. We shall not rely upon money or, or our wealth. We shall not boast in the education we received at the particular school or college we attended. We shall not rely on any gifts like that of personality or intelligence or special abilities. We shall not rely on our morality and conduct and good behavior or the life that we have lived or are trying to live. Like Paul, he says, we shall regard all of this as dung. To be poor in spirit is to know that we are nothing and that we have nothing and that we look to God in utter submission to him and utter dependence upon him and his grace and mercy. Does that describe you? Are you poor in spirit? Do you understand your great need? Do words like poor and beggar come to mind when you think of yourself? Jesus says, I came to proclaim my gospel to the poor. He says, you have to come to me poor. All you can bring to me, says Jesus, is your need. He says, you come to me spiritually bankrupt. See, and it's only people who come to Jesus out of this sense of deep, deep, desperate need in this state of utter poverty, Jesus says, those are the ones who belong to my kingdom. Those are the ones. 
And he's not saying anything new. He's just picking up on God's heart. In Isaiah 57, verse 15, for this is what the high and exalted one says, he who lives forever, whose name is holy. I live in a high and holy place, says the Lord, but also with the one who is contrite and lowly in spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly, to revive the heart of the contrite. Isaiah 66, verse two, these are the ones that I look on with favor, says the Lord, those who are humble and contrite in spirit and who tremble at my word. Listen, it's no accident that, that this beatitude, poor in spirit, is the first one. It, it, it's first because it's first in importance. And, and not only is it most important, but all the other beatitudes are, are birthed out of this one. They're all dependent on being poor in spirit. Because there is a progression here. These beatitudes describe our journey to Christ and our journey with Christ. Our journey to Christ begins and only begins when we recognize our utter poverty, our spiritual bankruptcy, which causes us to mourn. We're mourning over our sin, we're mourning over our brokenness which produces meekness, this deep humility before God, which then causes us to hunger and to thirst for righteousness, something that we don't have. And this is what draws us to Christ and to the righteousness that he offers. And we come to him in our poverty, saying almost the words of the hymn, nothing in these hands I bring, nothing. Simply to the cross I cling, naked, Naked, come to thee for dress. That's the totality of what it means to be a Christian. It's a person who can literally in their heart declare, I am nothing and Christ is everything. Jesus says that those who hunger and thirst for me, they're gonna be filled. And, and once filled, our lives now ooze Christ. We're full of mercy because we know his mercy. Our hearts are pure because Christ has made our hearts pure. And, and we bring peace because we know the peace of God through Jesus Christ. And we're persecuted because the world hated him first. But all of this hinges I'm being poor in spirit. Without it, we're left in our pride, apart from Christ. Being, being poor in spirit, then, is, it's, it's not something that, that we perform. It's, it, it's not something that we do. This is where the desert fathers and the monastics got it wrong. They just said, you know, if I, if I make myself poor and I starve myself and I beat my body um, and, and, and do all of that, then I'll enter into the kingdom. kingdom. No, now we're right back into making it all about us. The only way a person becomes poor in spirit is by looking to God. Because we cannot look at him and not have a profound sense of our spiritual bankruptcy. I cannot come into God's presence and not experience this utter poverty of spirit. It's in light of his awesome majesty whether you know this or not, we are all nothing but beggars. 
And what I find is the more I look at him, the more hopeless I become in trusting in myself and anything that I have to offer. And yet the more I hear him say, bless you, son. Bless you, daughter. For to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And see, this is how I know the gospel has been preached even a little bit because it comforts the afflicted and it afflicts the comfortable. The gospel always does this. And to some of you this morning, this is, this is really, really good news because you know your need, you know your bankruptcy, you know your desperation. And what this is promising is that, that all your need and, and desperation is is starting now, and, and one day in, it will be completed. It will all be filled with all that God is. And some of you, you have absolutely no idea what Jesus is even talking about. Because you have no idea how needy you are. Because you're so immersed in the world. I offer one suggestion. Pray this prayer. God, would you show me how poor I am? How needy I am? Would you please do that? This morning the table is set for communion. It's God's meal that he offers to the poor, to the meek, to those who are hungry and thirsty, to those who have been filled and satisfied with Christ. Don't make this a ritual. If you get out of your chair and take communion today, you are declaring to God and you are declaring to everybody else, I'm poor. I'm poor. God, you love this quality so much that you became the ultimate poor person. The ultimate homeless person. You gave it all up. The riches of heaven and became the poorest of poors so you could make us rich. And that's the meal that we get to eat right now. May it change us. And as we eat it and drink it, may it, may it make us more like the Savior. Amen.